0: G'day, my name's Martin Murray and you're listening to the In The Paddock podcast, where we talk all things farming. Hey, I'm as crook as a dog this week, so um, instead of having a new Wednesday Tech Talk, I'm just going to replay my interview with John from the Blue E Cattle Stud. Enjoy. Today on the podcast, we're talking to John Wright from the Blue E Cattle Stud down in Woodstock, New South Wales. The Blue E Cattle Stud is an Angus Cross Shorthorn stud with a strong focus on feed efficiency. We'll be talking to John about why feed efficiency is important, some of the benefits it can give you as a producer, and how increasing your feed efficiency may be able to pay dividends for the beef industry as a whole. We'll also talk a bit about his grazing strategy, data collection, and what climate change will mean for the beef industry. Not from a climatic perspective, but from a marketing and market access perspective. It's a great podcast. There's a little bit of internet difficulty at times, but if you can put up with that, you'll be bound to get something great out of it. G'day John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your farm and your business?
1: Yeah, sure Martin, thanks for having me on. Um, bit of background on me, I guess I am uh, um, live in Central West New South Wales at Cowra and fourth generation on the farm here. Uh, we're now running a total uh, beef enterprise uh, certainly came from a very mixed uh, enterprise background, and um, we've changed that round over the years. Uh, got a cattle stud, and uh, we breed composite cattle. We crossed Shorton and Angus together and gave it a name called Blue E. Um, we've been doing that for about 23 years, and um, sort of one of the uh, unique things about that line of cattle is that we do feed conversion testing on all of the bulls that are bred. So we've been doing that for 23 years now um, for the longest in, of any stud in the world. Um, so yeah, just recording the daily intakes of every bull uh, that we bred as a, as, as a young bull uh, for a 70 day period, get their weight gains over that period and work out how well they've converted their fee. And, um, it's been a really interesting road.
0: You know, that's, it's something different from what most studs are doing. So are you, are you a, like fully a, a stud business or do you you run a commercial herd as well? Or like what's the split, I guess?
1: Uh, yeah, no, we sort of slowly realised over time that we had to um, try and expand and get a bigger commercial herd to, uh, to fund our little game of playing with cattle or a stud cattle. Yeah. Um, Um, but we're still very passionate about it, but it's a, you know, it's, it's only about 30 or 40% of our income. The rest is all commercial cattle. And, um, but we use that commercial herd to, um, enable us to do sort of genetic evaluation on, on the cattle that we are breeding. And, um, that certainly gives us a very commercial focus as how our our stud works. Um, and yeah, love it. I'm very, very lucky. I've got a, a, Beautiful farm here, we've been able to expand on it and um, um, got a couple of great guys that work with me. So it's, yeah, it's
0: um, going pretty well. Ah, that's good, that's good. I gather you had a sale recently, how did it go? Um,
1: So yeah, in um, beginning of September, we had our on-property sale. We've been having one of those for the last 20 years. Uh, We sold um, about three quarters of our bulls, for an average of about six thousand, topped at fifteen and a half thousand. So, um, and that's better than we've ever done before. Um, I'm a bit of a realist in the world, and I look at what everybody else is doing and try and uh, be the best. And um, yeah, we're certainly not anywhere near the best in uh, when you compare it to the big Angus studs and how they're performing. Um, so we've got some some ground to make up over the years. Um, it's been a, the Angus program has been a Really, really successful one, and all credit to them. But um, if you're not in that game, it's been a bit tough. So we've given ourselves a fair challenge by breeding a composite line of cattle, um, and you know uh, we're not uh, really making a huge amount of money out, out of out of uh, the cattle at the moment, but have um, big plans and and are very excited about it.
0: Oh, that's good. It still sounds like you know you had reasonable uptake there, and given the last few years we've had, it's good to see a bit of confidence back in the market. Um, now you, you said,
1: oh, it, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now you, you said earlier that you're, uh, like, I guess your niche, what separates your stud from most of the other studs out there, if not all the uh, other ones is your breeding for feed efficiency and that trying to improve that feed conversion ratio. Um, why, why is that important and why is it important to be for they doing that in other industries?
1: Um, yeah, I guess there's been a lot of work done on it, a lot of research done over the years. And certainly if we look at, um, you know, the other protein suppliers um, or our competitors, depends which way you want to put on it, spin on it. But the, um, you know, they've done a lot of work in these areas and made a lot of, Lot of ground, um, certainly poultry and the pork industry um, have selected for that trait for a very long time and have really, really changed um, the genetics of their animals and um, their ability to convert feed. We've always been, the beef industry has always been, you know, a fair way behind in that sense. Um, So there was a lot of work done on that to to try and improve it. And it's still going on, but, you know, we see, we know within the population of animals, you know, there's a hundred percent difference between some animals that look exactly the same when you're talking about their ability to convert feed. So you can have a five to one converter and you can have a 10 to one converter, you know, walking around your paddocks. Um, My philosophy has always been that I want to try and find out which is the first the the five to one converter and breathe from him and get rid of the 10 to one converter. And, um, you know, that information was discovered probably 30 years ago and still just as relevant today, but um, not many people in the industry have really uh, adopted it. So um, yeah, it's still a work in progress, I guess.
0: So presumably if you've got, uh, you've got a, herd of five to one converters, you can run twice as many as those 10 to one converters. And uh, that would leave you with double the amount of beef at the end of the day, if you were to break it down to that per hectare type role. Exactly. I mean, it's just kilograms of beef
1: per hectare that we're, um, we should be talking about. Um, And so it's the ability to be able to, you know, run more animals, and that stuff gets really, really, you know, important when you look at, you know, the mid 70% of the feed that the, um, you know, a commercial beef operation um, consumes is consumed by the cow. And so, you know, that's the focus. Certainly, you know, it'd be, it's, it's good to have more efficient steers in the feedlot and that sort of stuff. But what we're trying to do is make a more efficient cow because the cows are the biggest on the farm, uh, the most of them. And then it, they're... Um, on the farm grazing every day of the year. So, as I say, 70% of the feed consumed by the cows, so that's where the focus has got to be in trying to reduce our feed costs. Our input costs um, is by looking at the genetics of those, those cows and how we can make them better converters.
0: Yeah, I've never actually considered the, the cow sort of thing. I've always just, like I'm from a cropping background, I guess, so I, I tend to think in t- kilos or tonnes per hectare and, given when I, I do step into the, um, or look at, uh, beef production side of things, they normally trade steers. So I've never, uh, thought too much about the cow side of thing. So uh, again, I guess similar comparison, you'd be able to run, you know, two cows per hectare compared to one. If you're looking at those five to ones compared to those ten to ones, would that still hold true? Uh,
1: not quite as clean as that Um, it does get a bit more complicated but you know you're you're talking about um you know an analogy that says if somebody gave you you had a thousand acres and somebody gave you another thousand acres would you accept it um of course you would um it mightn't be quite as clean cut as that but if somebody was going to offer you 500 acres for free to um to operate off you'd certainly accept that as well so does there's you know, significant gains to be made there. Um, it doesn't quite convert you know, one-to-one in that, um, in that cow sense, but the gains are really, really big still.
0: Yeah, right. No, that's, that's fairly impressive, and it would, it would be great for just on-farm production, um, allowing you to turn off those more kilos per hectare in the end of the day. So are there, are there any trade-offs? Yeah. Like, uh, are you you're going to be sacrificing growth rate for feed efficiency or um, yeah, how does it work out? Or are they sort of, they're, they're not linked traits, I guess.
1: No, and, and you know, that, that, that work has all been done. You know, the research on that, that side of things has all been done. So the, there doesn't appear to be any genetic correlations that are, you know, a real problem. Um, in relation to when you're selecting for feed efficiency. So, you know, j- just like in any any program, if you do single trait selection or you just focus on one part of your breeding program and forget the rest, um, you know, there's a car crash on its way. But if you take a multi-trait approach to the way you're selecting your animals and take all the traits with you, there's nothing there that's so... Um, strongly correlated that it causes you problems. There's a little bit of a correlation with with fat, but it's about the only one. It's the one that gets talked around, uh, talked about all the time. But you know, it, it's just a a, um, a small correlation that, with some selection pressure, you can certainly keep under control. But everything else it seems to be pretty damn um, pretty damn good. So, and we've found that we're 20 years down the track, six or seven generations of selection and as far as the the, the profit driving factors in our beef enterprise uh, you know, the major ones are fertility and growth and um, muscularity and feed efficiency and and marbling. Those five major profit drivers, um, we have seen no decrease or or effect on those, if not a positive um, correlation, making those things get better.
0: Uh, That's good. That's good. I, um, when I was at uni, I did a uh, animal, science type course. After uni, I ended up doing a whole heap of pasture and forage work and thought I should know something about the, the animals that eat them. So I ended up doing this animal science course. And part of the genetics one, they were talking about pork and poultry and how they were all breeding for feed efficiency. And they said that they um, didn't bother about it with cattle. It was all growth rate. And To me, I thought, well, you know, if the way I look at the, the cow, again, probably something to do with that trade steer view of them, is that I'm growing the grass and they're the header. I don't want a header that throws half the crop out the back. And uh, it always struck me that they weren't too, um, yeah, that they weren't too interested in that. Are you seeing a bit more of an interest from say academics or MLA or just other, you know, industry organisations, I guess?
1: Yeah, we certainly are, and there's, you know, there's still some, some really major questions to be answered, which is frustrating after 20 to 30 years, um, and some of the things that need to be answered are some of the major reasons why people haven't taken it up. So people, people still ask the question, you know, you're, you're testing your bulls in a feedlot situation, or you know, even though the, the diet we've got them on is a low-energy high-protein diet. Um, they ask us, so testing them in that condition, uh, if you find a highly efficient bull in those conditions, when he has daughters and those daughters grow up and they're out in the paddock, are his daughters more efficient? And it's a really good question. Um, and every bit of work that's been done in, around the world suggests that that is the case, but it hasn't been um, proven conclusively yet. And so people tend to sort of focus on that and go until that's answered, I'm not going to do it because it actually costs a lot of money to, to do the testing. Uh, So the industry's just sort of um, waddled along a little bit in the, in relation to this trait and um, haven't made a lot of gains.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine it'd be the uh, easiest or cheapest thing to measure, particularly if you're trying to measure feed intake out in a pasture paddock. I, from the top of my head i couldn't even guess how you'd try and do that
1: no and you know we're starting to get closer and we're working with some researchers from city university and and adelaide university at the moment um, uh, one of the things i think we're going to have a bit of a chat about uh, the beef industry and methane but sort of one of the most important things that has come out of a lot of the research in relation to to methane production is you know, the amount of methane an animal produces is directly correlated to how much they eat. And so there's some technology that's now available that uh, enables us to start recording how much methane an animal's producing. And so, and we can put those recorders out in, in the paddocks. So we'll be able to start getting an indication of how much methane um, animals are. Uh, producing whilst they're grazing grass um, and also start picking up the differences between animals. So that's, that is the first time you you talk about how can we measure how much an animal eats out on grass? Well, it might just come to us via being able to measure how much methane they produce, which will give us, you know, a direct correlation to how much they're eating. And, you know, there's technology that's been created in um, Canada and in in um, America now that uh, enables us to do that, and we've got a couple of those machines here on the place at the moment, which is really fascinating.
0: That's brilliant, and we'll, we'll come back to the methane in a bit because I, I know well, you know too that we spoke a bit offline yesterday uh, about the environmental impacts that this could have and um, how that can really help the beef industry. Uh, but I just Want to quickly touch on the feed efficiency trait? How heritable is it? Will you, um, like, say, if I was to buy a Louis bull and put it over any old mob of cows, you know, presuming they're semi decent cows, will the the progeny then be, uh, you know, reasonably more feed efficient? Um, yeah, I, I guess is what I'm trying to get at is is just how heritable that trait is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah so the the the, you know the actual figures probably don't mean much to people but you know the the one trait we do know about is growth and we know if you you know buy a fast growing bull the progeny will be fast growing or should be if you're paying attention to the figures and the data um what they do know is that feed efficiency is about as heritable as growth so it's, it's in the realm that's worth bothering about. It's, you know, there's a lot of other things that are really hard to change in the population of animals, like fertility and those sort of things are poorly heritable traits. So they're really, you gotta work really hard to improve them. Um, a trait like feed efficiency and a trait like growth are both relatively highly heritable traits that you can really shift things within your herd, um, over time.
0: So I think a couple of generations, you'd really be seeing some gains then.
1: Yeah. And we're, you know, we're certainly seeing that we're starting to get in the situation where we can do some comparisons and, you know, over time, um, over the last 20 years, you know, it's in the realm of 15 to 20%. I think that we've shifted our whole herd compared to the average herd. It seems to be what's reportable. Um, and that's a lot, you know, you, you, you transfer that across a 500 cow herd, um, In my eyes, we've created a lot of grass over time. We've created a lot of rest in our paddocks and that sort of stuff by our cows not eating that grass and um, leaving it there and enabling us to create rest that we all know is beneficial in any grazing situation.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely good for the grass, good for the soil, just good for the farm and business as a whole, Uh, particularly when you've had a string of years like we have (laughs) the last three
1: yeah, that's right. that's right. No, it's interesting. It's a really interesting world. We're actually doing a little bit of you know, uh, work on um, you know, how we can, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how we can stop those cows eating. If you let them eat as much as they want every day, they'll eat 15 kilos if they're a 500, 600, 600 kilo cow. Um, they only need half of that. And they need half of that amount of feed really to maintain their condition, maintain their pregnancy, outside those times of joining and and when they're suckling a the calf. But um, you know, with the advent of early weaning, um, now you know, cows are spending over half their year non-lactating, pregnant, walking around your paddock eating feed. Why would you let them eat fifteen kilos if you could somehow get them to only eat seven? Uh, so we're having a bit of a play around in that space at the moment and looking at grazing densities and you know the soiling effect that big numbers have on on their ability to graze and using that using that to try and reduce their intakes. And um, you know easy to put cows in a in a ploughed paddock or something and they won't eat or leave them in a paddock for a long time but you destroy your paddocks and destroy your soil. So we're trying to sort of play around that space with smaller paddocks and, and, and greater density. Um, that soiling effect really stops the meeting. And, um, yeah, there's some fair, fairly significant gains to be made in that area too.
0: Yeah. Right. I think we'll get onto that a bit later. Cause I, I did see that you're a advocate of planned grazing there on your website. Um, but we we've been touching around it so far. So I, I think we should probably talk about the environmental benefits. Um, because whether people like it or not, uh, global warming seems to be happening and, uh, yeah, the, uh, the world's moving in one direction and we've got to move with it. Otherwise we'll either be legislated out or just knocked out of the market one way or the other. And, uh, from what you were saying yesterday, the, um, increased feed efficiency has some significant benefits there to offer.
1: Uh, yeah, again, you know, it's not, not surmising. It's not making shit up. It's, it's research that's been done. It's it's you know been going on for the last fifteen years, uh, showing that relationship between you know feed efficiency and and um, methane production, which directly comes from that part. That you know the more an animal eats, the more methane they produce. It's just completely logical. Nothing scary. Nothing strange. Nothing odd about that. It just makes sense. So if we can breed animals that are more efficient. Um, you know we're getting more products per per unit emissions i guess and it unfortunately has to be that way because if we just select on emissions then all we do is start breeding animals that eat less and when we breed animals that eat less we know they grow less and so if we have animals that grow less they're going to get smaller and smaller and then they end up being alive for a whole lot longer because they don't grow as quickly and so that's a um, a bit of a, a contrary argument in, in breeding that we don't want to head down that track. So, where you know the, the, the next logical step is to look at feed efficiency or the ability of the animals to convert, and that's where the industry's decided it needs to go. Um, and that's where we've been going for, for a long time now.
0: And presumably, that should be getting a, a fair bit of. Traction there across the industry bodies, um, given MLA announced earlier this year, I believe it was to be carbon neutral by twenty thirty.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a massive challenge. Um, but you know, like in everything, it's better to have a better to have a plan and better to have some you know to have some ideals and some some dreams than know at all. So. You know, it's a real challenge for the industries to be able to do that, but we're certainly heading in the right direction. Um, You know, the reality is that talking about climate change in the agricultural industry is still pretty hard to do. Um, There's still a lot of very strong opinions in it. Um, But, you know, we try and talk about uh, climate change and emissions in relation to beef in the terms that, it doesn't matter around us what we as cattle producers think about this issue. It only matters what the consumers think, um, and so we can go, "Ah, oh, who gives are rats, and it's all rubbish, and that sort of stuff, um, all we like." But beef producers are only really, really small percentage of the consumers of beef, and um, and so if you if, if you're not listening to your consumers, if you're not looking at the way that they're behaving and what they're thinking, you're an idiot and it doesn't matter what game you're in. So, um, there's lots of language around and it seems to be intensifying about how people feel in relation to, uh, the beef industry. And, um, again, the facts are pretty damn clear that, um, you know, the emissions coming from the, from beef all around the world, um, is part of the problem not the major ones. And we have to concentrate on all the different areas, but there is no doubt that the the consensus seems to be around the world that to fix the problem, everyone's got to play their part. And so I don't think anyone expects the beef industry to be destroyed to fix climate change. I think people expect the people within the beef industry to take responsibility for the part that they play. And we've got to do that as individuals in our own lives. And industries are going to have to do it as well.
0: Yeah, no, correct. Everyone's going to have to try and work on their own space, whether you're a farmer or a miner or a, I don't know, chartered accountant in Sydney. I guess they can swap to energy efficient light globes or something. But, yeah, everyone's got to play their part, Um, which is...
1: It gets into a... I was just going to say it gets into a very interesting part Um, Martin, where you, unfortunately, the the problem the beef industry has is that, you know, when you look at the language and you see it all the time that, you know, this sort of what does the individual, what does the consumer or um, Joe Blow living in the city, doesn't matter what city is around the world or in the country or wherever, but those people who want to do something about climate change and are saying, I want to play my bit. How do I do it? The answer that always comes back is use less energy, access it from a renewable source, drive less, fly less, and eat less red meat. Um, The first four of those are actually really hard for most people to do. Um, Of course, we're trying to reduce our, our energy use because it costs us a fortune. Um, accessing it from renewable source is possible for some, but just impossible for others. Um, and once you've done that, um, there's only so much you can do in, in that area. Drive less. It's pretty tough for the majority of people to, 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 to make a decision to drive less. Um, and fly less can be the same. Giving up their holidays or their trip to see their relatives or their work trip or those sort of things, you know, it's hard change it whereas reducing the amount of red meat um is easy and doesn't cost them anything and it's really hard to hear that's really hard to hear for the beef industry but we can't ignore that that's not created by anyone other than just logic that's just logic that's just the way it sits so that's why there is so much pressure on the beef industry because it's a tangible thing that people seem to be able to do and 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 you know, the industry is starting to feel that. And certainly there's a lot of businesses around the world that are starting to recognise that. If you look at the alternative meats um, and plant-based products and that sort of stuff, um, they're all lining up to, to fill that space that um, may be left behind by people not wanting to eat red meat.
0: No, you're right. There's certainly a lot of hype of, around those, um, particularly those alternative proteins uh, whether they're the plant-based products or these lab-grown meats, which, you know, they're a long way off being commercially viable, but, uh, you know, they're still in the, the realm of possibility someday, somewhere down the line. But um, like I, I might come back to that, the planned grazing thing. Like I watched the Netflix documentary there the other weekend called Kiss the Ground. Uh, for the most part, I thought it was reasonably misleading and they had a very negative view on modern agriculture, but they did argue there at one stage that cattle may be part of the solution through cell grazing and intense rotational grazing to try and build up the amount of soil carbon just from really working those pastures and working the pastures into the ground. Is that what you're trying to achieve with your planned grazing? <clears throat>
1: um yeah i think so i i unfortunately came from a background in, you know a, a, as a as a mixed farming area uh i just didn't have any of that diesel running through my veins and it just the the, the cropping side um you know just didn't ring the bells um but i gave it a good hot go at one stage we had a thousand acres of cropping going on and i wasn't very good at I discovered um so I'm be, i was best to focus on the things that i enjoy and do so that's why we're with livestock um with this uh after doing the rcs courses and that sort of stuff it just gave me a way that i thought it was possible um you know to work on improving my soil and and doing all those things that we need to do you know, in a pretty logical way. I wasn't keen on using too many chemicals. I wasn't keen on well. it's not that I wasn't keen on using them. I just didn't want the cost. I just couldn't justify the cost. So if, if we could work out a way to, to operate, um, you know, nearly as well, or three quarters as well without chemicals and without, um, or without spraying and without fertilizer, um, I was going to give it a go and, um, in a cattle situation. So we've been doing it for um, 20 years. We don't do it perfectly. We don't follow all the rules. We do it as well as we can under being a stud um, in our conditions and our worlds, but the principles around it of just graze and rest um, are magnified in so many ways. And we know that all heads towards uh, more ground cover increasing carbon in the soil uh, retaining moisture in the soil um, building the microbes within the soil working towards better diversity of species um, on your place and that sort of stuff which is better be stock all of those things um, are really positive things so they're you know they're not taking away from anything else and not not um, criticizing anything else it's just um, a concept within itself that if you want to work with that Concept, uh, you know, after fifteen or twenty years of doing it, I can tell you it's really impressive and it's it's really enjoyable to be part of.
0: So, can you just explain a bit how it actually works? Like, yeah, as I said, I'm from a fairly um, like a straight cropping background, and like I sort of understand the concept of cell grazing, and I'm not sure if that differs from plan grazing. But yeah, I was just wondering if you would give us a bit of a background on it and how it all works.
1: Yeah. I mean, the principle is, is about creating rest. So, you know, the, not necessarily, you know, 500 days rest isn't better than a hundred days rest. Um, but it's just, it's creating that amount of time for, you know, the, the basic principle of it is all about when you, when you take a plant and you cut it off. Um, if it's a perennial type plant, if you, or a plant in its growing time, if you, cut it off, take all the greenery away, the only way it can really regrow is tap into its root reserves. And so if you're continually allowing that plant to be chewed off um, by set stocking, then eventually the root reserves get exhausted and the plant dies. Um, So which are the plants that get grazed most, the most desirable ones, the most palatable ones, which are the ones that go first in that set stocking arrangement? is the most powerful ones, the most desirable ones. So uh, the principle was going, giving as much rest, giving those plants the opportunity to um, recreate the greenery, regrow, get back into a state where they're starting to photosynthesize again, recharge the root system and enable the the plant to, to rebuild and we know what happens when those, those, that root system gets to expand and grow and, and get down deeper and um, all the filaments and bacteria and everything that goes with all of that sort of stuff is so beneficial to the soil. So you've got this sort of win-win situation where we're, we're allowing the plants to keep getting back into that um, exponential growth phase where you're creating a lot of feed rather than pulling it all back and just keeping it in that shorter phase. So, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of benefits there, but the, the simple part is just looking after that plant, um, and not grazing it out. And unless you give, give the plant rest to recover, um, you, it, it won't do that. Those root reserves get exhausted and the plant dies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's all sort of large mobs on small areas for a short period of time. That's. The like basic concept of the system, I guess, like, yeah, like, physically
1: so works day to day. Sorry, that, yeah, that's what I was going to. So, increasing mob size means that you're, you know, uh, either, either either you have to create more paddocks. Um, We're not, uh, you know, if fencing is bloody expensive, we do a lot of it just with electric fencing. Um, but the more more paddocks that you can create, you create more rest by creating more paddocks. You create more rest by increasing the size size of your mob or decreasing the numbers of mobs that you have. So they're two really powerful things that you can use. You know, we um, we have little funny behaviors about, we've got to have the heifers over here and we've got to have the cows over here. And we might even break the cows into different age groups or, you know, break them into their colors or I know that happens in sheep a lot, um, in age groups and all of this sort of stuff that, um, And why do we do it? I don't know. Um, You know, there's um, lots of funny little things that we do that once you stop doing them, you wonder why you ever did them in the first place. But certainly by creating larger mob size, um, you create, you know, more rest time for those paddocks that you're not in. Having a big mob of cattle, I reckon is like just having a big tractor. That's what it feels like to me. Just just ripping around the place, just uh, having such an effect on the... Um, the ecology of your paddocks. Um, Yeah, I I find it really interesting and really satisfying. to say I don't necessarily do it to the letter of the law, but if I do it 80% of the time, uh, um,
0: that's better than not doing it at all. No, that's brilliant. It's um, good to understand how all that really works. Um, But I guess the other thing to cover off is obviously you're a stud, so you collect a dotted a lot of data and uh, with a focus on feed efficiency, you'd be collecting a massive amount that most other studs probably don't. Um, It's obviously vital to your decision-making and vital to a lot of commercial properties. Uh, If someone is trying to improve production on their property with a commercial herd, what data do you think they should be focusing on and how should they implement it? Um,
1: yeah, look, it's it's a big question. I, I think we've got to focus on those those factors that are, are well proven to be profit drivers. You do that in every other 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 business. You you, you know you don't go and throw uh, you know two tons of the acre of a particular fertilizer um, if one ton will do it and get the response that you need. So it's it's the same sort of stuff. It's it's working out what your profit drivers are. What are the things that, how much will give you, um, you know, enough gain to justify the expense? So that's what profit drivers are. And so the, the main profit drivers, as I say, within the beef industry have been well established over a long period of time. And the, the number one is fertility. So that's just ensuring that every single cow on your place um, is having a calf because she eats a shitload of feed throughout the year, um, three to five tonnes of feed each, each year, each cow produces. So if she doesn't have a calf, that's three to five tonnes of feed that you you know, may as well have left to rot in the soil. Um, and so fertility and numbers, it's just like a factory. It's, it, it's numbers through, uh, really, really shifts your um, profitability. Second one is growth. We're still very, very linked to, to growth as a, as, a, as a profit driver because that's what we get paid for unfortunately 20 years down the track we're still there nothing's changed um so you've got to recognize that but but growth can um have a pretty nasty tail sometimes and it can lead to having really really big cows that can cost you a lot of money as well if you're not sensible in how you do it so it's 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 using a multi trait approach and the other traits that we talked about uh, feed efficiency um, is one that uh, reduces your costs and um, enables you to have more animals on the place or less costs. And then obviously the more, the greater yield you get in your animals, having more muscle, uh, gives you more kilograms per hectare. And then marbling has been proved to be a real um, profit driver because it brings, uh, brings us to new markets as we can see uh, is what has happened with the um, the Angus breed and the Wagyu breed. Um, It creates new markets, um, because of the story about um, eating quality and 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 consumer satisfaction. So that's why those five traits sit where they are. So they're the things. Don't get carried away with all the other rubbish. It's just frustrating. And um, unfortunately, we're in a world where coat colour is still pretty important, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with um, anything, really. The hair follicles on the skin certainly don't have any effect on the on the meat and the quality of the product that you produce or the profitability of the,
0: the product that you produce. Yes, I've made myself fairly unpopular at a few cattle shows when I've said you're paid per kilo, not per colour.
1: Yes. Shows is probably the first
0: thing that should go if we're gonna try and get anywhere, but that's not very popular to say either. No, no, that isn't. People love going there and looking at the coat and the stance and how square they can stand. But anyway, that's that's probably a topic for another day. Um, no, that, that's good. So, fertility, uh, rate um, of growth, feed efficiency. Martin, I'm
1: just gonna say, just gonna say, Martin, just in relation to that data stuff, just to give you a little example, that we've got a, our facility down here, we imported this technology from Canada, the growth safe Feeders. And um, so we've got 80 bulls down there being uh, tested at the moment. And uh, that facility or those feeders, there's um, uh, eight feeders down there that are being weighed every second. And the bulls just have their transponder, their NLIS tag, as they walk, um, to put their head into the feed bunker and they get scanned just like we do on our farms. So every second those eight feeders are being weighed all the time, it's recording which animals are coming and going. So that's a huge amount of data. But luckily for us, the, can- the company has structured it all. So all that data just goes straight uh, to Canada via um, the internet. And they deal with all of that data. And we just get re- a report back each day just telling us how much each animal has eaten. Is there any problems with a feeder or is there any problems with an animal being sick and that sort of stuff? So it's pretty simple, really. You, we just need to go there once a day, fill up the pens and, and check, the, check the screen for the report. And the rest of the time, we just keep on doing what we're doing. So it's pretty amazing technology.
0: Yeah, that's handy. Otherwise you would be filling sheds with hard drives.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered?
1: No, I don't think so, other than to say I, you know, I reckon it's, um, it's a pretty exciting time um, for agriculture. You know, everything seems to be aligning quite well. Um, you know, you don't hear too many people, as much of whinge as farmers can be. If there's something to whinge about, they'll find it. Um, and they're struggling for something to, to find at the moment, generally. We were, had a horrible time during the drought, but we were really lucky. That the price of our product was was still really good which is you know the industry has created incredible markets all around the world for us to supply our product to. so that's really really um, exciting and, and and you know for the future of the beef industry and farming generally i think it looks pretty exciting i do have concerns for the beef industry and on on how the behavior of consumers we're very very lucky that that um, we have China um, as a, a place to supply a lot of beef that's, that's given us a lot of growth um, and many other markets as well. But um, I think we, we tend to sit there thinking those people don't care about it so we don't need to worry about this climate change and this emissions thing. Um, unfortunately, they live in the same world as us and will be treated by the, the weather in the same way and supplied with the same information as we are. So, um, yeah. I don't think anybody has any idea where it's going to go and how quickly things are going to change. But there's certainly a lot of people talking about it and a lot of people getting pretty concerned about, you know, how the future of the beef industry might look.
0: Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree with you there. Whether you're talking about a consumer in uh, Bondi or in Beijing, uh, they, they do shop Australian for that clean green image and particular China. Um, they've, just obviously announced this week or last week whenever it was, it was recent that they're phasing out of coal and want to be carbon neutral by 2050, I believe, if not sooner. And if there's one country in the yep. world that can make that happen, it will be the Chinese and they'll pull every lever they can. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's, um, we know how much the world's changed in the last 20 years. Um, what it's going to look like in twenty years' time, um, I don't know. But you know, we're just talking about risk. Any any business always looks at their threats, always looks at the potential um, downturn or things that might might uh, reduce production or reduce consumption and all those sort of things. It's it's you have to be sensible in that way um, and look at the risk and. To, to ignore this part um, is, I think, um, ignoring um, a fairly large signal of risk that is coming to our industry. And uh, if we don't attend to that, um, then let's not feel sorry for ourselves or um, you know, um, feel down if something, if, if consumption does go down and we've done nothing about it. Um, if you look at the other industries... Around us, the energy industry is certainly changing, the car industry is changing. Um, You know, all of those other parts see this and are are, are reacting to it. And, um, you know, even the airline industry um, are are doing a lot to try and reduce
0: their emissions, and we're not doing too much just yet. No, no, there's probably a bit of an ostrich mentality at the moment. Just stick your head in the sand and hope it disappears, but it's not going to disappear. And I think that mentality is changing um, just from what I've seen and observed the last few years. Yeah,
1: and I think that's true. I I see it, you know, I think there was a a growing conversation. It all had to go a little bit uh, quiet and justifiably so uh, during coronavirus, Um, you know, there was, there was no point having those sort of conversations when there was a greater threat there and a more immediate threat. So I think everybody sensibly just kept quiet and um, if we can hopefully start to move away from that threat, I think the conversation will start up again pretty strongly um,
0: for us to start doing more and, um, and recognising the issue. Probably a tad ironic, but Corona's probably done more to carve... Um greenhouse gas emissions than anything else has in the last few years.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: it's amazing, isn't
1: it? But I don't think anyone wants to sort of permanently live in the state that we've been in or no. not, not we, because as farmers, we've been so, so incredibly lucky um, not to be, you know, if it's one thing that you should be bloody grateful as farmers for now is that we are farmers and we are in Australia, that we're in New South Wales, you know, um, there's so many things as a, as a, a producer a farmer in, in New South Wales in Australia that you need to be grateful for because it's been bloody tough for um, so many others and will continue to be. So no, um, God love
0: agriculture. Quite glad I'm in agriculture through the current times. It's, yeah, uh, we, um, we've been in a very privileged spot. We've, uh, I don't know, of the time it's just been business as usual. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, you've got to be grateful for that. Yeah, no, well, that's, that's good. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, absolute,
1: absolute pleasure, pleasure, Martin. Thank you for having me on and um, good luck to all your listeners out there.
0: No worries. Thank you. Once again, I'd just like to thank John for coming on the show. It was very insightful. If you'd like to know more about his stud and what they're doing with their increased feed efficiency, please check out the link in the show notes below.